You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. So hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Uh, unfortunately, Alexandra Helen Nicholas couldn't be with us tonight, but good to see you both. Good to be seen by you. Thomas. And to be heard by (laughs) me as well, thank goodness. Exactly. Now, look, on tonight's show, we're going to be discussing the science fiction horror film Life, which has just opened in cinemas globally, and we will also take a look at a new home entertainment release, The Greasy Strangler, a very off-kilter horror comedy. But first, Clash is the second feature film by Egyptian filmmaker Mohamed Diab, whose previous film was Cairo 678 which came out in 2010. Clash was the opening film of the Cannes Film Festival's Uncertain Regard section last year and it screened locally at the Melbourne International Film Festival. This Thursday, it will begin a limited one-week season at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Clash is set during the riots in Egypt in 2013 after the military removed the newly elected President Mohamed Morsi from power. Morsi was a member of the Islamic... Islamist group, the Muslim Brotherhood, and during the days that followed, members of the Muslim Brotherhood and pro-military supporters clashed, often violently, all throughout Egypt. Now, the film clash is set entirely from within an armoured police van, holding protesters from both sides of the conflict, plus some people who just got caught up in it all, including a couple of uh, journalists, uh, one of whom has ties to America. I went into this film knowing pretty much next to nothing about the filmmaker or really much about the events. I mean, I was aware of the history, but I didn't, to my shame, you know, didn't follow it that closely. Um, I'm curious to know whether you two, um, Cerise and Emma, you both sort of went in as blind as I did and what your response was to this film as a result. Totally blind. I went in just knowing the title, actually. (laughs) I didn't know what I was going in for. I wasn't on my radar as part of MIF. Um, So I found that... um, I was I was quite excited by the setup. Actually, I like that idea of a claustrophobic one location film, um, especially in such a you know a, a highly tense situation um, across the course of one day. And for me, you know, I see a lot on the news um, people being thrown in police. Um, um, armored vehicles. It wasn't even. It wasn't even police van. It's one of those bigger police trucks, and um, you know, you see that happen. You don't know what happens after it. Really, you don't know what goes on. So I was quite intrigued by that setting and what did happen, and basically the the danger that occurs from just being in this vehicle, which uh, I found really interesting. And it's not a, a, a partisan approach to the subject at all. It's because um, I think um, Muhammad Diab was uh, actually a blogger. He was an anti-Mubarak blogger, which was the incident that sort of kicked off uh, the, the 2011 revolution that kicked off uh, all this trouble that then escalated in 2013 when there was another overthrow of the government. So he he came from a certain view, I'm guessing. Um, I'm not sure how he felt at that point of view in the events, but he did present, it was more a story about humans and what happens to these people um, in these situations and how ideals get quite quite convoluted and mixed up at that time as well. 
Um, so everything was, all the ducks were in place for me for this, but for some reason I didn't get enthralled in the way that I thought I would. And I, I've thought about it a bit. I will be, I am um, open to saying maybe I just wasn't in the mood and that can happen with film watching and I am, you know, I, I will come clean and say that I was feeling quite tired and so forth when I saw it. Um, but also I think it was the characters themselves. I didn't really like anyone. Yeah, the whole film does uh, – it has a, a sort of one tenor for the whole film and it's just hysteria, really. Uh, everyone who winds up in this van, no matter which side they uh, pledge allegiance to, is a total hothead. Everyone is just <laughs> flying off the handle constantly. And when you combine that with um, a, a camera that's extremely uh, shaky – um, you know, and yes, sure, we're trying to get the idea that this is bedlam and it's bedlam within the van and it's bedlam outside of the van, but it does make it very hard to really feel any warmth towards any people because you're only seeing them uh, at their most combustible. You're not really getting a nuanced picture of who these people are. Uh, and I, I suspect that some of the point, some of the point is that people tend to be extremely absolute in these situations about who they ally themselves with. And there is a, a little suggestion at some point in the film, but I think too little, that perhaps all of these people were on the same page once back in 2011 when things really started to happen and uh, I think it was a 30-year-old regime was overthrown and, and there was a lot of hope, as there was throughout the Arab Spring generally, throughout that whole part of the world where there was uh, revolution after revolution, which, uh, as we know, has generally not gone so well for most of those countries since, alas. Um, but I, I had actually, I think, the same experience as you, Emma. I did mm -hmm. not really get enthralled by this. It, it, it just struck me as a really one-note film. I, it didn't strike me as having anything particularly profound to say, uh, simply because everyone did seem that little bit too one-dimensional. Everyone was just going to blow up at the, the, at the merest hint of uh, a front that they could take at uh, any suggestion that somebody was this or they were that. And there was not a lot of grey. And things only settled a little bit at night and, and, and people show a little bit more of the humanity. But most of the time, yes, sure, these people are under straightened circumstances and they really don't want to be in this van and it's all very painful, but still their behaviour was just not the sort to draw me in to actually care about yeah. any of them. I got really into this. I had quite a different experience. Well, you I, were wrong. Uh, <laughs> you were just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was really blown away by this film. This was really white-knuckle stuff for me, um, almost from the very moment. And I, I think it is that... I love the concept of a very short period of time. I mean, it isn't in real time, but it takes... What, maybe it's over about... 12 hours, sort of afternoon to, to very early mm. morning, and I love the single location idea. Um, you know, I'm a big sucker for that kind of narrative where a group of people who don't know each other uh, have to be forced into a confined space to, to just work out how on earth to get along. And there's always some people who are better at um, dealing with the situation than others, and there's people who might be a bigger threat than some others. And then this film goes that next step by making sure we remain in the van in the back of this armoured van for the entire film. So even when you get shots of what's ha happening outside, it's always through the, the bars um, in, in the window or, or when the door at the back is, is opened. And I thought the staging of some of those riot scenes externally looked looked incredible to the point where I was, I was thinking, how on earth did they actually stage this? Um, 
I've done zero research into how they made this film. I'm guessing they must have shot it somewhere else because it, it yeah. looks like full-blown uh, riots. It looks like they actually shot during actual riots, which um, is impossible because some of the stuff that happens to them um, is quite fraught. It weirdly at points reminded me of um, Offside, the mm, Jafar yeah, I got that too, no, film. Yeah, yeah. because that, I mean, there's an extended section at the end of that film where the girls are in the police van and they're... So in, in, in Offside, it's about a group of girls who go to try to watch a football game and that's something women can't do. So they all get arrested and the film ends up with them in the police van and they get caught up in a big... Is, is the festival or is that a riot as well happening there in Offside? Uh, I don't know that it was a riot, but, um, I mean, I loved that film. I haven't seen it in years, so I don't remember yep. the particulars. No. I, I, it was it, a World Cup soccer it was, match. Yeah, that, so, yeah mm. they, they're caught up in the celebration yeah. on the street and you yeah. just got that kind of vicarious sort of sensation of the excitement going on around them and that was actually a real game it I mean, was yes yeah panahi actually went and shot during the real game and um yeah i mean th- that film is a whole other level of, of cinematic genius but i don't know i got a taste of that from clash and i i actually really got fascinated with a lot of these characters and i did get into uh, i did start to invest in in many of them and i like the way that within you know first of all you could broadly split the groups into tr- into two parts of course that the, the that the MB supporters, the Muslim Brotherhood supporters, and then the people who are very much against them. But then within those groups, they start to, to, to fracture as well. And you do get the more dogmatic people, you get the people more inclined to violence, you've got the people who are trying to keep the peace. And then, I mean, I, I guess it's not a huge revelation to say this, but different parts of different groups start to work together to try to maintain order. And I quite like the way that the division then became less about Muslim Brotherhood versus the military and it became more about people trying to maintain some kind of sense of humanity and people who are still trying to disrupt what was going on. Mm. So so all, all, all those small moments where people cared for each other I found extremely moving. Um, but, yeah, I, I, was, I was really white-knuckled and I, I think the film did give us some respites. I don't think it was hysterical the whole time. It no. even uses this concept of fading to black twice. That The film is very roughly divided into thirds where there is a sense that we kind of collectively take a breath with the characters and calm down before it all starts up again. Did you um, think that... Uh, I, I'm not sure whether the Peter Grester case, which is the, of the Australian journalist who was um, incarcerated over there for quite a for quite a while during, during these events, whether that was actually a reference with the American journalist. I mean, it was American journalist, not a, an Australian journalist, but it felt like that might be a little bit of a, a nod oh, I thought to that. that journalist character was sort of a more generic reference to journalists who are being caught up in well, this well, and, and maybe, arrested. Well, maybe, because I don't know. Yeah. That was obviously a very high-profile case here, but I don't know whether anyone really took any notice of it in um, in Egypt, so it might have been just a, a general thing. But it was that idea of the journalist being somehow aligned with um, one side or the other without without being impartial and actually being journalists and doing their job. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that this is a film, if anyone has, uh, if anyone's going to go with Thomas's <laughs> enthusiasm for this film, it should be seen in a cinema. Um, it's very much a, a case of where you, you need to be confined in the way that the characters are confined to, to really be absorbed into it. It's not so much a home entertainment film film um, because you are open to distraction then and these sort of films um, you know you want to be in there with the characters you want to really feel that you're on that journey I do agree with you with those um, uh, outdoor scenes where you capture those glimpses of what's going on and it is absolutely 
absolute cacophony going on outside. Especially the, the green lasers. The green lasers was really, that was really interesting. Mm. That became sort of a um, an object. It was kind of the inanimate green rod of that film. <laughs> I, I, I never thought of lasers being used in any way in that and that 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 child that had the laser in the in the actual van and the danger of the lasers as well um so that we just to explain we're talking about those pointer lasers that yeah yeah I remember, you know, all the... That are know, illegal. Yeah, they're illegal. And they're illegal. Are they? Yeah, yeah they are. Oh, okay. That's why yeah, I don't see people here. pointing them at the screen anymore in cinemas. No, because... I remember there was a phase where everyone took them into cinemas and... Very annoying. Yeah, it was excruciating. And also you can blind people yeah. with them, so... <laughs> there's a whole Seinfeld episode about those, I believe. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, the, but apparently they played a big part in this conflict and, and the way those green light lasers are used, it becomes almost abstract, some yeah. of the imagery in this film. Yeah, that's true. Towards the close of the film, mm. the, the imagery does become actually quite beautiful and that the chaos of all of that, it, it's, it seemed very, very unclear what... Uh, uh, putting that green laser light out in any given direction was going to signify to anybody out there. And that was made actually quite explicit too, that people didn't necessarily know whether they were drawing attention to somebody by pointing at them or trying to draw attention to themselves, themselves try yeah. casting that light towards somebody. And so, yes, bedlam. And I, I agree, the, the scenes of chaos, uh, choreographed chaos outside of the van were, were quite extraordinary and just getting those glimpses of them uh, through the the windows, or even sometimes that open door that was open and yet very closed, mm. no one could really uh, get out there for longer than a moment or two. And and the uh, again, some very specifically um, Muslim social mores are brought to the fore there. That, uh, that the, the business of whether men and women can contact one another, can touch one another, can a nurse administer first aid to a man. Um, no, not necessarily because of this, the gender divides. And, and so it's not just that political divide too. There was a little bit of other aspects of Islamic society just put under that um, uh, microscope in that very yeah. confined which, which space. I found fascinating and I, I just really got the feeling that the filmmaker, so this guy named Mohammed Diab, really loves his country, but he's also utterly despairing about what's happening to it. I, yeah. I felt that there was a lot of humanity in this film and, and he really wanted to, to show a wider audience just a lot of the confusion and the the, the, the frustrating conflict between people. Mm. I mean, a, a lot of the conflict in this film really did seem futile and I think it really convincingly argues that this doesn't benefit anybody and in the end everybody caught up in this has suffered and it's it's a real tragedy what's happened to yeah. that country. So I, I kind of, I could feel that the film Make his heart bleeding for his people in this film. So you say you say all of this, and I cannot dispute a word you say. Yet somehow it just didn't get it through. Just didn't rub your yeah. rhubarb. Yeah. yeah, rubbed what? <laughs> rubbed your rhubarb. Because Alex is not here, I'm going to try to introduce a new expression. Whatever Rub rubs your rhubarb. Your rhubarb. Yeah, oh, okay. if you like something, it rubs your rhubarb. Probably a really good time to stop the segment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Let's have some music. Yeah. You're listening to Plato's Gay with Thomas, Emma, and Cerise. This is three triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Life is a US science fiction horror film directed by Swedish filmmaker Daniel Espinosa and written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, whose previous credits include Zombieland and Deadpool. The cast includes Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Reynolds and Rebecca Ferguson as three of the six crew members on board a space station. 
that has in its possession a soil sample from Mars that contains what could be proof of life on other planets. Spoiler alert, the sample does indeed contain an alien life form and it's it's a life form that grows and evolves very quickly and it starts to kill off the crew who become increasingly desperate in their attempts to survive and prevent the alien from getting to Earth. It may evoke your memory of a previous film. Emma, you and I were in the same screening and we saw this and you were... I I must admit I was a little bit indifferent to whether we actually covered it or not on the show but you were keen to talk about it. I was. Over to you. What's the deal with life? Is this a film that's worth having on our radar? Well, I feel with with Life that there was a, actually a brilliant film in there and I was just waiting for it to kind of burst out of John Hurt's chest onto the <laughs> onto the screen. I oh, know in saying that obviously we we've we've, we've uh, um, thrown out some not too subtle hints that it's very similar to Alien, but I think it's high, conceptually high conceptually uh, very close to Alien, but I don't think that that should have been the problem. Um, there's enough with that concept to be mined through many films, I think. Um, the problem with life was that it maybe did reference a little too closely and not in a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of cute way. And uh, it didn't have the gags of Deadpool and uh, Zombieland, let's say. Uh, but uh, just in ways like the title sequence that you went, oh, come on, come on, that's alien title sequence, that you think that this film would have steered well clear of that in order to give it some more... Gravity, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, um, because it, it could stand on its own two feet. It was really a series of, I mean, as in the way Alien was, it was about this crew being picked off one at a time, and um, it felt like a whole series of events. Of of <laughs> of killing sequences strung together, you could play kind of um, which death sucked the most with this film after uh, you know having drinks afterwards. Um, those sequences, I think, in the hands of the director, I felt from this, I might be completely wrong, but I I felt the director was a very good director and those tension sequences were really tense. Like, he built up tension very well, but it, it smacked of a film by committee of other people coming in and saying, oh, we have to do this or, you know, that was popular in Aliens, so we have to do that. And it, it kind of diluted it. Um, in a way that I thought was a shame because there was stuff in there. There wasn't a good monster, unfortunately. <laughs> and if you want to make comparisons to um, to Alien, then you've got to have a good monster. I mean, Alien had an HR Giga monster. This had a um, what looked to me like a CGI jellyfish. And it started off well in the CGI, the CG imagery small, but as it got bigger became a bit of a caricature. It was also given a name, Calvin, which made it very different. Strangely gives you a different relationship to it than, um, than say, in Alien, that it was just a thing that no one referred to by any name. And I guess kind of humanises it in some way, yet it's meant to be this totally inhuman creature form. Uh, so, 
in a nutshell, that's how I found about it. <laughs> I think I'm on a similar wavelength. I had, yeah. I had a similar, actually, experience with this like I did with Kong. In the first mm. half hour or so, I was pretty excited by the potential of what this film was going to be and I you know they introduced the characters were all kind of stock characters but they're character types I like and I was looking forward to spending time with the the, the first um, death scene was a surprise I didn't think that's how they were going to start doing things um, there's a beautiful that was very good that death scene the first death scene's pretty good um, mm-hmm. the, the, you know the, the, I'm, I'm a sucker for a show offy long shot and this was doing it through the space station which I I quite enjoyed um you, you joked about the gravity of the film as well, hinting that this film also owes quite a big debt to gravity. And again, it's it, it's quite you know a lot of people have already said this is gravity meets Alien, and it's kind of hard to to argue yeah. against that. That these kind of two films that are mashed together, but I, I I did find it bewildering as to what the intent of the film was in relation to Ridley Scott's Alien, which was it felt you know were they really trying to evoke that film? To us, were they were they trying to connect this to that to sort of as some kind of uber homage to sort of get us on side with it by making the parallels obvious, or did they really think we wouldn't notice? <laughs> did, did they really think that they were going to get away with us not noticing how blatant the similarities was? And it just it walked this weird line in between. And so a lot of the film I just spent thinking about yeah. what is the intent with this film that's so overtly referencing Alien? Yeah. And, and, I, and I just lost interest. And a lot of it was because it got, um, yeah, it, it did feel directed by a committee. Um, and the Alien just looked like a, a Cgi um, uh, you know, dishcloth. Sort of, <laughs> sort of a, a, a it was kind, kind of, of starfish. Yeah, a kind of gelatinous mop. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit squiddy. I, yeah. I saw this just last night. And as it so happened, two of the trailers that ran immediately before it, uh, one was for the next Alien film and the other was also Ridley Scott attached as the Blade Runner um, sequel. Yep. So I had both of those <laughs> jogging about my, my head when watching this. And, I mean, yes, the the, com- the points of comparison with Alien are just so, so blatant and so many as to make the films feel extremely derivative. But it still managed to generate some genuine tension on the other hand, it was really dumb and the science in it was stupid. None of it made any sense. I mean, you have to take a, a allow for a certain amount of, um, oh, I really don't want to say suspension of disbelief. Oh, what do I want to say? You, you have to give a film like this a certain amount of leeway just to say, well, these are the rules of the film and you just got to go by it. And okay, fair enough. But then every now and again, when someone went to say something vaguely sciencey, they just mumbled it. So I just go, oh, all right, you're not even trying. You don't care. <laughs> and no, uh, okay, this film's just going to be big and dumb, and some people are going to get picked off by degrees. And, uh, God, I'm... but that they set up the promise at the start of the film of some really interesting world building with the technology they were using. That, that mm-hmm. again, like there was a lot of shots of the way they had everybody's. Uh, a, a body kind of mapped out electronically so they could see pressure points and how the body was being impacted by they did zero nothing with. They did nothing with that. Well, they did one little bit, but that was a very twee thing towards... You, you probably can't yeah. remember. No, yes. I can't. And a, lo- oh. a lot of it was kind of hurried through as well. I mean, this, this, this alien creature is obsessed with oxygen and yet we see it kind of having a bit of a party on the outside of the spaceship at points. And yeah. I mean, that, that was explained to me later that it, it, it can survive for a little while without oxygen, but then it really, really needs it. And I just spent the whole film thinking about that sort of thing. And Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I kind of felt that, that there was one character, um, the, uh, the main scientist, the one that actually... Um, n- 
knew some stuff or, or was the one who was meant to probe the, into look at this life and encourage this life. Um, I found that his, pre- his presentation of his dialogue was really annoying. He had this kind of sound to his voice the whole time that just, I don't know. It just but again, he work. was a character with enormous potential because they introduced this really interesting idea that he um, probably very young in his life lost the use of his legs and we see that they're, they're, you know, they're, quite, they're quite withered and he has this fairly beautiful relationship with being in space because he has the same movement and momentum as his crewmates and that's quite a nice moment and then you get the suggestion that he may go to extreme lengths to preserve this alien because it's got the potential to replace say something like stem cell research yeah so there's that interesting moral conflict about what he might do and how he might behave doesn't go no, anywhere no <laughs> they stomped on their own potential yeah. it was the the revelation of the alien was great i don't know look i i still think we need a Puppetry. We still need puppetry with CG enhancement to make something really, really pop. Um, I'm an old-fashioned kind of girl, though, oh. with that. No, I'm with you, too. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Old-school animatronics, um, oh, some yeah. genuine goo. Yeah. And none yeah. of the CG stuff that's just too neat and tidy. Want actual mess. Want a sense that somebody actually had to clean the set up. Captured on film. You want all that Vaseline and all, oh, all the yeah. KY jelly they used, I think, in the original yeah. Alien film to drip off the teeth. And, yeah. and all, you just think of all the kind of spurting liquids in, say, John Carpenter's The Thing, which was yes. in the hydraulics inside the animatronics exactly. thrashing around. Yeah, I'm yet to see a, a, a CGI-dominant film that has created and, that buzz. And better acting. Uh, I mean, mm. for the actors to actually have something to act with creates better performances. Well, some of the lines they were given, uh, at least twice someone just said, he said, it's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> this is terrible. So, yes, new life has been discovered. Somebody watches it, sees it for the first time. It's at a cellular level. And, it's really beautiful. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really not. It's quite underwhelming. Later it will become a horrible squiddy monster thing. And that's not beautiful, but at least interesting. That's merits At the moment it, looked like, it kind of looked like a, a loogie uh, initially, which was not very beautiful. <laughs> It also had the same kind of oral fixation with how it killed humans that you get in the alien films. Like, it goes in through the mouth. And, you know, yeah. there's great phallic readings about the alien films as a result from that. So, yeah, it's another one of these nods to that film that I'm really puzzled by. Well, they were. I, I know where the puzzlement comes from because they're, they're not... They're not cheeky nods, and they're not um, they're they're not deferential nods. Mm. You know, they're, so they're, it, it's kind of like, well, what are these? This is just you're just doing. I it. mean, I still kind of enjoyed watching this film. It's not like I resented the time I spent in the cinema watching it. It was it was no. perfectly fine. But I think the moment the credits rolled, I started forgetting I'd seen the film and and getting uh, furious because that's right. You you, you saw me getting angry <laughs> yeah. because they played Spirit of the Sky. <laughs> At the end credits, which is one of the most misused and abused pieces of music in film. But not only that, but the tone. The tone of that film is... uh, the tone of that song is completely wrong. Well, it's ironic. The it, 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 they often pull out that song to be ironic because it's singing about, you know, Jesus and stuff. And oh, yeah. It's like We Are Family. I never want to hear that in a film oh, again. Oh, no. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Grown. Born to be wild. Yeah. <laughs> All these films just have to be... Yeah, anyway. Songs, rather. Songs, Yeah. Look, it was kind of fun, but gee, it was dumb. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the bottom line, isn't it? A couple of hours, reasonably well spent. Yeah, it's mm. it's one of those films where you shrug and say, oh, well. 
I'm looking forward to the new Blade Runner film, though. Yeah, that trailer looks gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not start reviewing trailers. Let's not become those people. You are listening to Emma, Cerise and Thomas being very silly here on Plato's Cave. This is 3 Triple R. 3 Triple The Greasy Strangler is a US horror comedy by British filmmaker Jim Hosking. After premiering at the Sundance Film Festival last year, it has since played around the world at mostly cult and genre-focused film festivals, including Monster Fest here in Melbourne. It's now available on home entertainment. The greasy strangler of the title is Big Ronnie, an oil-loving, extremely well-endowed bullshit artist who runs a disco (laughs) tour around his local neighbourhood during the day and during the night covers himself with grease (laughs) and murders people. He lives with Brayden, his long-suffering and subservient son, who's one chance at happiness in the form of a new girlfriend. Big Ronnie also manages to ruin. A combination of schlock horror and lo-fi absurdism, the Greasy Strangler is nothing if not unique. Why are we talking about this film? <laughs> I think Alex put us up to it. This is, yeah, I can't believe yes. Alex missed tonight's show because this was the one she pushed for and I said, all right. Well, she'll she'll be sitting somewhere um, listening, I'm sure, with Glee and going, why didn't you say that? Why didn't you? I, I yeah, will or say, maniacally laughing at what she's put us through. I will say straight away for, for Alex that uh, she thinks this is a very sweet film. <laughs> so after all those song titles, you take uh, from that what you will, but she thinks it's very sweet and, and lovely. But unlike... Uh, Make love to me, Brayden is one of the names of the song. <laughs> yeah. So there we go, that's sweet. Oh, that's lovely, you know. Yeah, well, there is a bit of love in it but unlike um unlike life which we've just spoken about which is a i'm guessing a much bigger budget film than the greasy strangler this film is a very accomplished movie it's uh high production values i think it's excellent in terms of the way it's written i think it's uh it's pitched it, it it pitches for a certain level and it, uh, it it's successful in everything it attempts to do, which is um, sort of in equal parts amuse us, gross us out and annoy us. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure. I, I really sit... This film... I, I so admire this film. I sit here with this film thinking afterwards... How can I how can I position this film? What can it, what can I say about it? I felt that it was either possibly the worst film of the year and and intentionally being the worst film of the year or one of the best films of the year. That's how I that's that's how it moved me. It felt like uh, Wes Anderson for Wackos or Napoleon Dynamite for the Demented. I, I came up with. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do an X Y, an X Y, an X meets Y thing. I okay. came up with Tim and Eric meets a Razorhead. Oh, I like That's that one. Good. I yeah. like that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually uh, far too colourful though. It's uh, Razorhead's black and white. It's a very colourful film. I it, it's a really colourful film, and that for me was its biggest strength. The production design is there is an aesthetic of ugliness here that is really hard to achieve. I think the the, the balance or the imbalance yeah. of just the wrongness of how it looks is is really appealing and impressive. I, I enjoy ugly, the, beautiful. It ugly, is though. really beautiful, ugly, and I really liked. I mean, even the actors these. Grotesque-looking actors were fantastic. <laughs> um, I, I, I oscillate 
about how I feel about this film. It, it didn't gross me out as much as I was hoping it would, and it didn't make me as laugh as much as I was hoping it would, but it, it had its moments as well. I was never bored. I was never irritated by it. Um, I found some of the dialogue a little bit try-hard. I did find it a little bit... It reminded me of the kind of sketches I used to write at uni, thinking I was being funny and dark and disturbing. <laughs> and that's a bad thing if it reminds me of my own writing. But um, I, just the repetition of I want more grease on my cereal and all that kind of stuff, I got over that fast. And, and I, fe- I felt like the film kept on building as something really, really outrageous. And it never... It, it, well, it did get there eventually in the last two minutes. And I kind of thought, really, is that it? <laughs> But having said that, yeah, the audience, Thomas. Yeah, I was. I (laughs) proud. (laughs) But I I don't know. I I didn't hate it either. I've heard. I've heard from some people. I know people who really despise this film, who saw it at Sundance and said you could feel the energy just sap out of the room during the first screening <laughs> as everybody is sat there going, what is this? But that, do you know what? That shows me the success of the film, really. But it destroyed a Sundance midnight audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I've heard people who love it. and I, So I, I don't love it as much as some people love it. I don't hate it as much as some people hate it. I am glad I saw it. You will never remove <laughs> from your memory... I think it's one of the most indelible images in cinema in the last a hundred and something years. Uh, the car wash scene, a big Ronnie. His, his, See, his, that's a that's a big call. Oh. Last hundred or so years. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, is that a big call? Is that so big? I mean, that is such an there extraordinary image. There was something image. big in that it, scene. It, it, something, yeah. Well, there's something just very powerful about that. That moment it comes back to time to time. It cuts to it beautifully every time. It's there's something uncanny about that time. The, the director, perhaps it was the editor more, I don't know, but someone has an uncanny sense of timing, knows when to throw to the most ludicrous image in the entire film. It's just a lovely little motif running through it and just baffling because, yes, you do need to clean grease off, um, but should it, it feels like it's a religious experience somehow for Big Ronnie each time that happens, <laughs> an, an ecstatic vision, and I love that. I really <laughs> think it's so amplified and so But they did ludicrous. it time yeah. and time but that's again. that's the point, <laughs> Thomas. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, yes, I know. I know. That it, conversation, that, like, yep. there's some beautiful scenes. I loved the... <laughs> The secondary characters were so so strong and individualistic. Like the 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 trio that were on the first tour, disco tour, <laughs> who then have that fight about the paprika ridge chips that just pushes this <laughs> conversation out beyond. It's excruciating. You know, I, I kind of I wanted to kill myself, and I went, <laughs> "This is fantastic. This is." Uh. This is a film that knows what it's doing. I mean, Anne Timpson is the uh, the producer of it, and he's uh, there's one a definite of them, one of the producers. Yep. He's a uh, he's got a definite timbre to his movies, and people may have seen Deathgasm or we Turbo about, Kid. We talked about both those films, I think, when they oh, came right. out. On, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so there's obviously a, a tongue-in-cheek, but a New Zealandy tongue-in-cheek thing somehow <laughs> that's got in the midst of all of this uh, revisionist disco historian shenanigans, which is you know, totally ludicrous. Um, I can't remember some of the, the claims even made about which Bee Gees album was recorded wherever, but it, all of it so gloriously, not just improbable, but just yeah, it's bullshit. Um, that's a, that's a, the one. A line of dialogue that is just a constant throughout this. It's Ronnie and Braden just calling one another bullshit artists. It's just <laughs> yes. a, a volley back and forth constantly. Uh, the film is completely fucking 
inane and I actually kind of sort of adored it. I, I saw this at a midnight screening at a festival overseas oh, months really? ago. Oh, really? Okay. A media well, midnight screening. So and how weird. Well, yeah, what, what was, was the general the response? Yeah, people from? left. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but when I talk, my, the reports I've had yeah. about that first Sundance screening was yeah. that people were really pumped up. It was that kind of gore, cult, <laughs> yeah. crazy audience and everyone just got really bored and, and a bit sad by it because it just didn't deliver the peaks it was promising to deliver. Yeah, for those who stayed, and I was amongst them, I, I was going, yeah, this is singular. I have yeah. not seen the Greasy Strangler before. I have not seen these characters or this quite this strange father-son dynamic, which is very peculiar and strangely competitive in ways that are just wrong and disturbing. It's been compared to John Waters as well, and I, I sort of see... That maybe not the the same aesthetic and maybe even talent, but I certainly see <laughs> yeah. the same spirit in this film. These films yeah. that often position themselves as being cult films are often, um, well, they're the kind of films that are often very try hard. This actually does feel like the real deal. I mean, yeah, I, I keep oscillating between praising this film and then going, "Oh my god, why are we spending so no, much this, time talking about this, it?" This film but, um, is. Uh, I think it's the real yeah. deal. I think it, it is the real deal. I, I I think that maybe the the wrong audience would be with the name the greasy strangler maybe they'll go in expecting the the chuckles and everything and maybe it all out over the top gore fest it's not like that it's not like let's go and gross out gore you it's more about let's just make your stomach turn a bit by the greasiness and wrongness of this (laughs) film (laughs) and let's drag out dialogue let's drag out moments and let's make you feel uncomfortable. Just to be serious for a second, though, I was a bit disappointed by I think the film took a bit of an ironic misogyny turn towards the end. There's a bit at the end where father and son have a conversation that they're meant to bond about Yeah. that I found a bit gross. And I, I thought, I know it's being played for laughs, Yeah. but I sort of thought this final, you know, isn't this girl disgusting after all and we hate her, I thought was really a bit... I, a bit disappointing. I thought it was more about those characters just being completely bankrupt and Braden being under the thumb. But we were you know? encouraged to be on their side, I think, to go along with their antics by that point. <laughs> Find it yeah. hard to get, be on the side of Michael St. Michaels is the actor, isn't he? Michael St. Michaels, who I believe also um, he plays Big Ronnie, the greasy strangler, and I believe that he actually acted under the name Michael Rappaport. So don't think that he was in. Uh, uh, what was it? What was the uh, Quentin Tarantino film? True, li- no, not True Lies. True Romance, yeah. True yeah. Romance. Michael Rapp- Rappaport, yeah, is he a was in New that. York-based actor. Yeah. That is not the same Michael Rappaport. But interestingly enough, I did notice that this this Michael St. Michael's was in different strokes at one stage. So all I can think of is the Greasy Strangler in different strokes. <laughs> in a very special episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, I, I, if anything, I was offended by, I think they were making fun of disco music and I'm a big disco fan, so, you know, a discerning disco fan, not crap disco. So I feel that that was the only moment that uh, maybe, That's you know, upset me a little line, bit. Emma. They crossed the line. They crossed yeah, the that line. That was too yeah. far. That was too far. <laughs> that wasn't funny. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I think we better wrap this up. 
This has been a very peculiar episode of Plato's Cave. It has. <laughs> Clash opens at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image this Thursday, and it's going to screen for one week, courtesy of Bounty Films. And I should also mention that uh, the Thursday 6 April screening, which is happening at 6pm, this is this is of Clash, Acme are going to host a Skype Q&A with uh, Peter Greist. The, the journalist and correspondent, uh, Emma, you were, you were talking about, who was arrested by Egyptian authorities in December 2013. So that actually would be a fascinating conversation mm. to, to, to be in the audience for after it would a screening be, of Clash. It would give it a very good insight into, um, you know, the contextual insight into it that we probably can't provide. That's right. <laughs> we're too distracted. Life is on general release courtesy of Sony Pictures. The Greasy Strangler is available on home entertainment courtesy of Monster pictures. Um, You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. If you do get a chance, go and check out the uh, Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website. That's where he put up all the all, all the music that we've played and um, uh, the summaries of the films discussed during the show. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Send us an email at platoscavefilm at gmail.com if you feel so inclined to as well. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.